Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The thing that was interesting, and, and you, I thought, were really on top of this, was who will run the United Kingdom? I mean, there's this whole pregnant issue of the when of it and the who of it. I, I, I couldn't who get will. A, Who's running it now? I, I couldn't get a straight answer. And this goes to the tension that Gideon Rose tries to find in Foreign Affairs magazine. As all of you know, I'm a huge fan of a print subscription to Foreign Affairs. You throw it at every smart mouth uh, college graduate and say, shut up and read this. Gideon, who will run the world? What did you find out? Well, uh, the it's an interesting question. And what I will say is there's a big debate going on. Um, and it's not just about whether China will overtake the U.S. It's if the U.S. Uh, can get its act together to uh, desire and reinvigorate its uh, international leadership. And there's everything there from somebody who says the fight is over, China has won, to uh, arguments saying no, the United States can reinvigorate the liberal international order post-Trump and keep it going. And not all of us can be right. And the really interesting question is, like those year-end summaries about what the market's going to do, <laughs> all you can do is look at the logic and try, you know, past predictions are no, and performance is no guarantee of future results. What's going to happen in the forward-looking balance of power is anybody's game. At well, this Gideon, point. I always think it's valuable to talk to you and draw a distinction between ability and willingness. The discussion that we often have about China and leading the world is about their ability to do so. Do they have the willingness to take a global leadership role? Um, no. Yes and no. So the interest. The, there's a fascinating piece in the issue by um, uh, Oriana Mastro, an American uh, China expert, arguing that what China is going for and has already largely achieved is essentially exclusive dominance in its sphere in Asia and a contestation with the U.S. for global uh, uh, leadership and and power more there. And so the, uh, the they're playing a regional game and a domestic economic and economic uh, growth game as well as a global leadership game. But in something like strategic affairs, they more want to push us well, out of the Pacific than organize an entire okay, new Okay, well, this goes to my community. book of the summer, Robert Kaplan, The Return of Marco Polo's World. And one of your advertisers in foreign affairs is Stravitas' Fletcher School as well. What's the Gideon Rose scorecard on the South China Sea? Is it China 1, U.S. 0 this year? Uh, there's no question. Well, things are drifting in China's favor. Essentially, the United States, at, with Brexit and Trump, yeah. the Anglosphere has taken itself out of the geopolitical game. And so essentially, uh, the normal <clears throat> operations of global order right. maintenance continue, but nobody believes it anymore because the United States really doesn't have its heart in it. But China isn't actually <clears throat> taking advantage right. to make new moves forward. And they're obviously weak and have been pushed back because of the right. trade policies. The question is, what's going to happen next? And that's anybody's well, business. Well, Ambassador Haas is in the issue. Greg Mankiw of Harvard, Alan Blinder, the former vice chairman at Princeton. I'm going to go to Senator Warren. Good morning, 106.1 FM Boston. Elizabeth Warren strengthening democracy at home and abroad. And she says the urgency of the moment cannot be overstated. It sounds like she's running for office. Are you uh, going to have any other candidates well, in your already, next issues? Uh, we would love to feature all the major candidates in the next cycle. We've already had the, the John Gideon Rose. We've had John Kasich in. We've had the uh, president. What? 
Has the president written an essay for you? The president has not. Um, uh, Secretary Pompeo, uh, we, we're, we love to have the administration and we, we pride ourselves on being open to all voices. Yeah. Uh, and we've had Secretary uh, Pompeo in last issue. So, uh, And we want the Republican candidates as well okay. as the Democratic ones. Democracy is the new inward. You know, it's like we're taking a journey. <laughs> Okay, we're doing democracy. What does democracy mean to Gideon Rose? Well, that's a great question because there's no, as people have been pointing out, in many respects, the populist movements uh, are majoritarian democratic movements. There's a real sense in in many of the countries we're talking about, uh, from from Turkey and Russia uh, all the way to uh, Eastern Europe and elsewhere, there's no question that there's a lot of popular support for certain kinds of policies. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the liberal democracy and the rule of law and some of the things that we think beyond simple majoritarian, you get to decide what happens. That stuff is under threat. And the really interesting question right. going forward is whether not democracy will succeed, but will liberal democracy succeed? Gideon Rose, thank you so much. John, save 36%. You know, they got these little things in the magazine. And the answer is for the price of 1.36 beverages of your choice yeah. at Hemingway's at the in, in Paris, you... you just get incredible brilliance me a for the year. For Christmas, is that I, your gift I to me? I think you know you and well, that, that Bill's your, already got one. I, you are know. you going to get me one too? I would make for it, by the way. It would be that it's a small price to pay, not just for new information, but rather for the context that allows you to organize the information you actually have. You get a ton of data all the way through your terminals, through everything, and what we provide is a way to contextualize that and fit all the data into some pattern that no. is intellectually is Gideon accessible. Gideon trying to sell subscriptions just, through just, the Bloomberg I, Terminal? I think he is. Gideon. I, Gideon, Gideon. The foreign affairs is thick and heavy. You throw it at the smart mouth college kid and say, shut up and read this. So I actually have one of those smart mouth college kids myself. <laughs> as a oh, do you? Uh, this year. And so I wrote the lead issue because I felt like I needed to tell the next generation <laughs> what to think. And I wasn't sure that anybody else could do it. So I went out and did it to oh, myself. It's my I talking kid. to my college kid's son in the pages You're of Foreign Affairs. Gideon Rose, thank you so much. <laughs> Foreign Affairs Magazine, don't leave home without it. Now joining us for a quick chat from London and retail, Andrea Felstead uh, joins us. Andrea, good morning. Your article this morning is on the crushing disappointments of Brexit, United Kingdom retail. Can you take it worldwide? Well, the interesting thing was, I mean, we were all expecting Christmas to be bad in the UK because of the uncertainty over Brexit. ASOS also mentioned France and Germany and said um, things were quite tough there too. Well, things are quite tough there too. I mean, these are these are real drops, aren't they? I mean, there's no other way to put it. That's right. Um, I mean, we were all expecting, you know, Christmas to be tough, um, and Germany had quite a poor autumn because it had really unseasonable weather and I mean retailers are always blaming the weather but actually it does matter because you have a hot spell in sort of September October and no one actually wants to buy a coat and coats are your high value items that you rely on bolstering your profit if that's not happening it's quite bad news you know in the blur I saw I mean an iconic name Laura Ashley since time began (laughs) with an x number of stores are shutting down I mean come on the one word in your report I mean Amazon 
is global and is beginning to have an effect across all retail, right? That's right. But don't forget that ASOS is online too. So if anybody was supposed to be well set up to, to compete with Amazon, it's ASOS. And ASOS has often been touted as an Amazon acquisition target because one thing that Amazon hasn't really got right is fashion. And whatever you say about ASOS, it has got fashion right for the young shopper. Well, are they going to take? I mean, it's a, they're enjoying it. On, shares on sale today. Yeah, uh, exactly. it, it reduced. I mean, exactly. I mean, I mean, are are you announcing the effect of this transaction? No, no, no. But um, right. but but ASOS should be a challenger <clears throat> okay. to Amazon. The challenger for me is you're you're from Heathrow and you're driving in, and there on the right side as you quietly go by is Harrods, and then there's Harvey Nichols and the rest of it. What's yep. a state of fancy London shopping that so many of our listeners um, uh, are aware of? Fancy London shopping is doing pretty well because the pound is still weak. We've yep. still got lots of travellers. So fancy London <clears throat> shopping shouldn't have any problem. And neither really should bargain basement London shopping. You know, when we spend, we all want a bargain. Where there is real trouble is this mid-market where they're not yeah. cheap and they're also not aspirational. That's where the right. real trouble is. But I think fancy London shopping, no problem. Let me bring in my colleague, Pim Fox. Pim, I mean, it's a real retail turmoil, whether it's UK or here. Yeah, well, I was just going to go through the list of, of retailers that have actually shuttered some of their operations. Debenhams, House of Fraser, Homebase, Marks & Spencer, New Look, John Lewis, Patisserie, Valerie, and of course, all the Toys R Us clo uh, stores were forced to close because of that. And I'm just wondering, does this mean that there's going to be an excess of real estate coming on the market um, in 2019? Yes, there will be. The, I mean, the other thing, all those shops closing, all things being equal, they should have started to benefit the ones that are left. You get a last man standing effect but you know the uncertainty over brexit has really overshadowed that and it's also overshadowed the fact that people actually have more money in their pocket the fundamentals are good it's just everybody's worried you know they've, they've stopped spending because they're worried what's going to happen in march do you believe also that there's going to be a clamor for staffing because many of the people that work in retail and in many of those kinds of jobs on the high street and indeed in logistics and so on mm -hmm. they come from countries outside the United Kingdom. That is certainly a problem that, that retailers and, and those um, restaurants and coffee shops have all alluded to. So it depends what happens in March, really. And also, we've learned that drivers, you know, just people that are driving the lorries, the trucks throughout the, uh, your, the uh, United Kingdom, that there is a shortage of over 50,000 drivers because recruiters, well, new immigration rules are going to make it more difficult for them to get those people. That, and that's going to hit online. That's another challenge to online if, if things can't be delivered. Do you get the sense that people are spending money in order to stock up on food and essential items? Those are reports that we've heard in the news media. Um, no, not at all. I get the sense that everybody is worried. It's, it's a bit like sort of 2008, really, um, 2009, when everyone was worried about the financial crisis and what was going to happen. And they held off from spending. One retailer said to me, it's as if somebody switched the lights off in October. Everybody 
everybody I talk to says October, November has been very difficult. This is this isn't some excuse for poor trading. This mood on the high street is real. Do you find also that inventory levels, stock scarcity, has also been yeah, a factor that they just don't have enough on the shelves because um, of these issues? Well, no, not because of Brexit. I think some retailers have bought very tightly because you know they knew things were going to be pretty tough, so they've bought quite tightly. And actually, Marks and Spencers had the opposite effect. They've actually they've struggled with their fashion for years, and they had some great fashion this season. The trouble is, they didn't buy enough of it, so they did yeah. have some shortages of of the great well, stuff that they had. I can tell you scientifically at the Keen household, this is a great comment. They're sold out. Uh, of everything. Not enough yeah. things to spend yeah, money on. Yeah, because if you're a retailer, there aren't any prizes for overstocking. You know, these retailers yeah. kind of monitor well, consumer spending. They know things are going to be tough, yeah. so they think, you know what, I'll just order in a bit less. What's going to be the global, the, the, the global losses? I mean, can you judge yet the margin compression that we're going to see? Um, not yet. I mean, one thing that we will see, I mean, ASOS was, ASOS was saying they did 20% off on Black Friday and that wasn't deep enough. Other people had yeah. been doing much bigger <clears throat> savings. So if people are discounting like crazy, right. that means margins will be hit. So we know that. Um, what okay. we don't know is the extent yet. Yeah, well, i, I got to say, ASOS shares right now, the, the online yeah. retailer, right. are down nearly 40% today. Today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing about ASOS is it's always been quite a strong, it's always had quite strong growth. It's always been a bit of a market favourite. So, you know, when you do have bad news from a company like that, it, it does become compounded because people have been used to them performing and they stop performing right. and so there's an outside effect. So it was always bound to be a, a big hit for them. Andrea Felstead, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it today. Pim, what do you see in the stock market? I see that this is going to be a pretty quiet week. One of the big issues well, is talk f- about initial yeah. public offerings and is there enough money in order to soak up all of the new issues mm-hmm. that are either scheduled to go out between now and the end of the year and coming right. up in 2019. Well, what, There's a lot I, of money. What I find extraordinary is besides the Fed meeting, we're in a holiday mode. I get that, except I'm seeing a tape deteriorate through the morning. We started out Fed dead. And all of a sudden, negative futures 13 and yields, you know, come in. And, you know, we're just sort of, it's a nudgy market into the Fed meeting. It's well, like, I mean, I think there's also the issue, as I said, of cash, right? Unless there's new cash that comes into the market, fair. you don't see stock prices move higher. And if you take a yeah. look at the flows, particularly the equity flows, you've seen people come pull out. out. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Where are they going? Just going to cash? Well, the people either cash maybe, or yeah. the people got to spend it. Things, you know, despite the CPI numbers that come out on a regular basis, I find that people tell me things are more expensive. Insurance yeah. is more expensive. Utilities are more expensive. Taxes are going up, and many people have not necessarily saved for the tax bill that's going to come in 2019. I was going to go right when there when they find out that they're not well, able to deduct all those property taxes. And, well, that's a very New York City kind of thing. No, no, what, no, no, what, no, sir. This is yeah. this is California, New Jersey, Connecticut. <clears throat> this is everywhere. What I'm hearing is the mystery about taxes for this year is permanent throughout every accounting practice. Every single customer, every walk of life is in the same panic about, okay, what what are my taxes really going to look like? Well, and also you end up figuring out that you work more than half the year in order to pay your taxes. Well, very good.
Our interview already on this Monday, our interview of the week, and I would say what a wonderful way to set up 2019 for all Americans. He is Paul Romer. He is out of Colorado. He is someone who did mathiness at Chicago and then went on to an extinguished career in economics at a number of institutions. And the laureate Jones, I can't remember if I've spoken to you since Stockholm in the blur. I, I can't remember it all. What was it like as a young Turk to work with George Akerlof? You wrote a paper. Oh. <clears throat> you did a co-write with Akerlof. Were you trembling as you did this? No, George George is a very modest guy. Yes, and, Mr. Uh, Yellen. I, I, yeah. I love, yeah, <laughs> he's married to Janet Yellen, that's yeah. right. Um, and Janet's great too, but George is, is very easy to work with. And uh, it was just a joy to, to, to write that paper with him. You came out of Chicago already known there for just a complete ability to grab the mathiness of economics. And more mm. than anyone I know, you've somewhat stayed away from it. Are we at a better point in mathiness now where we're not yeah. slaves to the model? You, you remember when Harry Truman was reputed to have said, I, I want a one-armed economist because yeah. he gets sick of this. Well, on the one hand, this, yeah. and the other <clears throat> hand, that. Unfortunately, with math, it's a two-handed problem. Some math can be very helpful. It can really clarify our understanding, but too much of it or math used the wrong way can confuse, can exclude. And so what we need to do is get to that Goldilocks use of just the right amount of math to zoom in on the things we really need to understand. I want to talk about the path from 1957. I mean, the folks, the, the modern era is 1947, Samuelson, uh, textbook 1948, mm -hmm. the clouds part for solo at MIT in 1957-ish, yeah. and then the entire issue of how we grow moves forward. And what you canonized is innovation and folding it into what's called mm -hmm. endogenous growth. Yeah. How are we doing? Are we growing within our system? Yeah. Now or are we making it up? But, but actually, let me let me tell you a story. When I tried to explain to my son uh, what I do at work, yeah. I said, well, I'm trying to understand why it is that your grandparents, when they were your age, didn't have these great things like a video cassette recorder. He looked at me and he said, Dad, that's obvious. When Nanny and Granddad were kids, the VCR hadn't been invented yet. Is there anything else with your work that I can help you with? <laughs> no, but but but, but, but you know, the point is, it, it's sort of been obvious to everybody that innovation is really what drives standards of living. What and you know, Solo recognized this. What I did though was say we can understand it. We don't want to just say innovation happens. We need to understand what causes it, and then what policies can we use to increase the rate of innovation, to increase discoveries, to raise yeah, standards of things. Is for your Paul Romer? Is your world the fault of this gilded age in that we've applied the innovation mm -hmm. to the benefit game of a gain rather of a modest or narrow segment of the American population, and everybody's flat on their back in a ludite America? Yeah. Because it hasn't benefited them. Yeah, I, I think that you know people like me who've been advocates for innovation really need to be held to account. The first problem is it doesn't seem like everybody's right. getting a share of the benefits. <clears throat> and moreover, we're actually in a period where people have less confidence in science than they used to have 20 years ago. And that's the thing that troubles me the most because 
science is the is the key to progress. It's what it's the greatest thing humans have ever invented. And if we lose our faith in science, you know, where are we going to get the extensions and, and, of health and, and life? And Pim Fox, this comes to American exceptionalism, and that that as, as Professor Romer says, that that loss of confidence. Well, my question would be, indeed, Art, if that loss of confidence exists, but you still have a cadre of scientists and technicians that are able to figure out what really goes on, but you have 99% of the population basically putting on the brakes and making it more difficult for those innovations to reach Mm -hmm. the public, what do you do? You've been involved in smart cities. What can you physically do? Well, I think what would be a terrible mistake is for the, say, the scientists to say, we're smart, just let us make all the decisions. We're in control, just just let us do our thing. Um, people in science, people in the government, we need to be accountable to the public. If the public doesn't understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, that's on us. And we need to do a better job of explaining it and rebuilding that kind of faith in what we do. and belief in the idea that facts are our friends, uh, I think one of the mistakes that we have made is we fed this kind of doom and gloom scenario that there's, that there's no hope for the future. And you know, for example, on climate change, we can solve climate change. We can manage that problem just like we've managed every other problem. The only question is how do we decide to, to move forward? But we gotta be careful not to make everybody so pessimistic and also make sure that they see benefits in their own lives if we want to keep this consensus for more discovery, more change, more growth. Granted, but it reminds me of Daniel Patrick Moynihan's comment about people are entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Uh, if, I, not, absolutely. If, if we're not all looking at the same fact-based situation, how do you even take that first step? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I've been talking about recently is having a sharper separation between the people who establish the facts and then the people who have to make decisions based on those facts. And often those decisions involve compromise. That's just the way of the world. The people who are providing the facts should not be thinking about compromise. They should not be thinking about who wins, who loses. They just need to say, facts are facts, here they are, you figure out what to do with it. And sometimes, frankly, in the academic community, we kind of pretend we're acting like the facts people, but then we start yeah. saying, you should do this, you should do that. And that's that's mixing the roles in a way that I think isn't helpful. They celebrated Romer 1990 a couple years ago, in the, in, and I, I find him phenomenal. Chad Jones yeah. explaining the growthiness in English. Yeah, yeah. Chad's done a great job. And he talked about rival and non-rival products, which is fancy economic yeah. talk, yeah. which is our thinking and our ideas are not the same as a countable item like a pencil or a bow tie. Yep. Okay, fine. Help our audience with the threat that all this intellectual mumbo jumbo is only the purview of the wealthy yeah. and the haves. Yep. What do the have-nots do? Yep. Well, first, um, if and let me let me put in a plug for my lecture in, in, in Sweden. I actually avoided the use of that term non-rival because it's a little too jargony. Yeah. And really just try to explain what we really mean, which is that when you codify knowledge in, a, in words or in math, then you can share it with everybody. So codified knowledge is very different from like a pound of, of copper because you can't all use the copper at the same time. You can't all use the knowledge at the same time. Now, on this question of how everybody gets a share, 
we have two very different systems for producing new codified knowledge. One is the, the, the system of science and open, transparent exchange of ideas. The other is the market where there's some control, a way to make money on ideas. We need to decide as a society, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw a line between, say, the NIH, National Institutes of Health, which is funding right, and okay. say, discovery of new pharmaceuticals? Where do we uh, give it over to the, to the pharmaceutical sector? And one of the things we can do is, if there are too many people capturing too much of the profits, is just use the do science you, Do system. you have an optimism, Professor Romer, quickly, because we're going to have to go. Do you yep. have an optimism that our political system can clear this market and get to a better technological outcome? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, just an incorrigible optimist. So my view about people is like Churchill's view about the US. They always do the right thing after they exhaust all the alternatives. So we'll eventually get back on track on these big challenges. Okay. Paul Romer, thank you so much and congratulations uh, again on uh, what was just assumed that work Pim Fox was so penetrating uh, decades ago that we almost take it for granted, this idea of moving on from Solo 57 to where are we going and how do we grow? And that was before the video cassette recorder or well, the cell I was going to say, Professor it Romer was, is optimistic for no other reason than he needs congratulations for for his marriage. It was a laureate marriage, right? Yes. It's in yeah. Sweden. Yeah, you didn't marry an Austrian economist, right? No, 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 no. I married a French literature professor. Oh, that's that, that's 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 more, why he's optimistic. That's more rationalistic. Yeah, tell Mr. Macron. Right now, on the markets, Douglas Cass joins us. We're in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Mr. Cass in Florida with Seabreeze uh, Partners. Doug, what's your positioning right now? First of all, following um, Paul Romer, a Nobel laureate, I am not worthy. <laughs> well, um, uh, I would say I, I, I exist. Uh, I'm, I'm usually considered uh, something of a Cassandra, Tom and, mm -hmm. and Pim. And I'm following Paul Roma, who is, by his own admission, an incurable optimist. Yes. So I have no better person to quote than Woody Allen, who may be the second most pessimistic he won person. The, in the he world was a Nobel me. laureate, too. Uh, in terms of the state of the economy and the state of the market, um, Woody Allen said something in an op ed in the New York Times back in 1979. It was entitled My Speech to the Year's Graduates, in which he wrote. More than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. He went on to write, the trouble is our leaders have not adequately prepared us yep. for this mechanized society. Unfortunately, our politicians are either incompetent or are corrupt, sometimes both on the same day. So but that's, we, where, but, I, but that's where basically I stand. We clear markets, and there's a fair amount of gloom out there right now with a good correction as well. In your history, how do you call bottom? How do you get back on board if you're cautious? Well, my approach is um, is an old Ben Graham um, approach. Um, back in the 1930s, he wrote the book Security Analysis, and I tie all my investment decisions, whether it's buying or shorting a stock or buying or shorting the indices, to the difference between the current share price um, and the intrinsic value or private market value of a company 
or, in my view, what the market is worth. And that's how I do it. So when prices um, sell at a discount to intrinsic value, I'm a buyer. And when they're at a premium to intrinsic value, I'm a seller. And um, um, today we have we have a, a, a number of problems. Um, John Farrow, in the, about an hour ago, uh, mentioned that in the past we've had monetary options. We've had a functioning G20. Today, not so much. And we're in a flat and increasingly an interconnected world. It relies on coordination and cooperation. And although there are still some living in the 60s and endorsing policies appropriate for a day gone by, we do live in a flat and interconnected world. And I've mentioned in the past three questions that keep me up at night. Um, Firstly, in a paperless and cloudy world, are investors and citizens as safe as the markets assume we are? Second, in a flat world, is it even possible for America to be an oasis of prosperity and a driver of engine or engine of global economic growth? And finally, three, with the G8 geopolitical coordination and roll time low, how slow and inept will the reaction be if the wheels do fall off? I think the uh, reason I want you to remember these questions is that the answers might serve as a valuation buster in the full, fullness of time. We have this, uh, we're living in an interconnected world. We have a lack of cooperation between the superpowers. It's problematic and more impactful right. than any other time in the past. Let me have Pim so my, jump in. So my bottom line is at best, right. we're in a period of substandard returns, more likely a period of steady strikeouts lie ahead. Doug Cass, the S&P 500 is down more than 11% since the 1st of October. Today we get a note that Goldman Sachs says they have a solution to high uncertainty about the stock market next year. Get, and what pray tell is that? Yeah, they, they say now now is the time to get defensive after the market's down 11% since October. Well, that's October. plain dumb. Uh, so grow, why do they bother? I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I when does know, the but, when know, does the Warren emperor Buffett, really have no clothes? We all know the oft-repeated Buffett comment: "Be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful." If you stick, if if you rely on price momentum, if you're a passive investor, you're in uh, ETFs or risk parity and quant strategies that are agnostic to balance sheets, income statements, and intrinsic value. You will be negative, like Goldman Sachs, when prices are going down. I always say the changing market structure has produced an environment where sellers live lower and buyers live higher, which is antithetical to Ben Graham and Dodd and Warren Buffett. And I'll stick with those three because they've done pretty well over time. Um, well, so. Let's do this. I have said for some time that the markets are underpricing and underappreciating risks, yeah. and that the markets would be okay. handcuffed by a number of factors. Let's do, let's most do, let's do this, Doug. We're going to run out of time. Let's let's come back with Douglas Cass. I want to talk to him about some specific ideas, particularly his vocal vocal statements on Twitter uh, through the years uh, as well. Mr. Cass with CB's Partners. This will be out on our podcast with Paul Romer as well. I think it's pretty cool. Romer than Cass on your podcast. I mean, you know. It rhymes, doesn't it? It Romer and Cass. I mean, there's a certain ballet to it. Paul Romer and Doug Cass back-to-back. Where else can you do that? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide 
I'm Bloomberg Radio.